Okay, um, the next event is called the Bema, and this is not in your notes. I added this late in the game here. But it's there and it's important, so I'm going to talk about it just for a minute. The judgment seat of Christ. They had a seat, and on your chart here, you have the rapture of believers going up. And something happens at that time. And uh, I'm going to write a word here. Bema. It's the judgment seat. In 1 Corinthians 5, 9 to 10, it says, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So there's coming a day, uh, as believers, after the rapture, when we will be before the Lord. And he w- it's a day of reward. Um, some may be ashamed at his coming. We saw in First John last week. That would be if we had sin in our lives. Um, but that would be guilt that we feel. That day is really a day of reward. First um, Corinthians 3 has another section on the judgment seat of Christ. And, and this kind of gives us the idea of there will be different kinds of rewards based on our works here in this life. So the idea here is not about salvation. We're saved and we're before the Lord, but it's a day of reward for the believer. 1 Corinthians 3, 11 to 15. For no other foundation can anyone lay that, than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. Yet so is through fire. Now there were earthly judgment seats called bemas back then. And it was a throne-like platform on which uh, a judge, would, a ruler, a judge would sit when making a speech, as we see in Acts 12, or hearing and deciding cases, as we see in Acts 18. And some rewards uh, will be given to believers based on their degree of faithfulness and service here now in this life. Um, some may be forfeited because of unfaithfulness, something like the fire burns away, Maybe some of the things we did for the Lord in this life were really for ourselves or out of our own pride. Those things will be burned away and what will be left will be the works done for the glory of God. And whatever it is, it will receive some kind of reward. Um, 2 John 1.8 says, Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. 1 John 2.28, John writes, And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. We should live holy lives um, now because he could come at any time, and we do not want to be ashamed at his coming. And uh, I would say do not focus so much on that because it's just going to be a day of rejoicing with our Savior when we're raptured to be with him, really. Um, don't worry about our sins at that day. Jesus is taking care of our sins. Psalm 103.12, As far as the east is from the west... So far has he removed our transgression from us. It's not a day of judgment on our sin. But those things that were done in the flesh are not to the glory of God will be burned away. And then we will receive degrees of rewards for our faithful service. Uh, where does the Bible talk about degrees of rewards? Well, there's a couple places I thought of. Matthew 6.20. Um, Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. So the works we do for the Lord now are laying up treasures in heaven. Um, Also, you have some specific rewards promised here in Luke 19. Luke 19, Jesus said to them, Well done, good servant. Because you were faithful and very little, have authority over ten cities. Um, And then he goes on to say, the second one came, the second servant, saying, Master, your mina that he had given him has earned five minas. So he multiplied it, right? Likewise, he said to him, You also be over five cities. So there's this idea that there's going to be a measurement one day. Um, I like to think of it as that we're each going to have a full cup of blessing. But some people's cups will be a little uh, bigger than others. Well, we won't be jealous of one another. Um, we'll each have a full cup of blessing. But, but some people, because of their degree of faithfulness and service in this life, will be over, have greater responsibility and enjoyment of blessings in the next life. So that's something to think about as a believer as we think about serving the Lord and giving of our time and energy here now in this life, um, that one day there will be a reward for it. And we should encourage one another to greater service. Um, Not on here, but Hebrews 10 says, And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, 
not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. The day is approaching, and so we're encouraged to consider one another and stir each other up to love and good works. And so we should not only strive to serve faithfully ourselves, but to stir up other believers to serve faithfully because the day is approaching and there will be a day uh, of judgment for the believers, not, not for their sins, but, uh, but for, their, for their good works. So that's the Bema. All right, the tribulation. Um, Matthew 24, 21 to 22 talks about this. Matthew 24, a key chapter here. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, nor, nor ever shall be. We've come through World War II and the Holocaust. That wasn't the great tribulation, as awful as it was. Um, it's coming. And I, I don't know how it could be any worse than that when you think about the atrocities of Hitler and the and the Holocaust and all that. You know, you see news stories about old uh, prisoner of war camp survivors and death camp survivors, and they tell these horrible stories. How could it get any worse than that? And believers around the world today who are being martyred for their faith and beheaded for their faith, saying, how could there be a tribulation greater than this? But there will be. The Bible talks about that. And uh, I'm just going to take a very brief detour to the book of Daniel. I don't have time to go into too much detail here, but just briefly, I found some great pictures that kind of go along with this. But we have some prophecies in the book of Daniel that, talk about, that teach us about history. In Daniel 2, King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream of a statue of gold, silver, brass, and iron, and then the feet iron mixed with clay. And then a stone cut out of a mountain without hands comes in and destroys the statue. And uh, this is a prophecy that has been fulfilled and, is, and will be fulfilled one day. Um, it's about... Daniel's interpretation was that that they are kingdoms, kingdoms that will come on the earth. And we see the head of gold was Babylon. He told King Nebuchadnezzar, you are that head of gold. And then after you, another kingdom will come that was inferior to you. The next world power was Persia. That was the breast of silver. And then you have the thighs of brass. And that was Greece. Uh, Then you have the legs of iron, which was Rome. Uh, And then you have... Uh, and that goes up the Roman Empire about to 476 A.D. But then you don't have the fulfillment of this last part in our history yet. Not yet. You have feet of iron and clay, the, these divided nations. Um, this ten is a significant number. In the book of Revelation, there are ten uh, kings in the time of the tribulation. And then you have this destroying rock coming, bringing in the kingdom of Christ uh, forever. And so those last things have not yet occurred. Another one from Daniel is in chapter 7. It's the same kind of prophecy. Uh, Daniel's given this vision of four beasts that come along. Um, this lion, this bear, this four-headed leopard, and then this uh, ferocious beast that tromps over everything. And, and again, it's those four kingdoms. Now, these, these prophecies were given almost 100 years before these things started taking place. So that's, that's pretty cool. I mean, Babylon was the current kingdom, but then there was Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And this fourth beast... Um, is kind of interesting. He uh, is not like any other normal kind of beast. He has ten horns, and then another horn ri- rises up, and, uh, and then the beast is slain, and then, and then the Son of Man, the Messiah, rules in an earthly kingdom. And so in this picture of the last beast, we have partial fulfillment in, in Rome, but then the rest of it is not fulfilled yet. And that leads us to believe, as prophecy uh, Bible scholars, that there will be a revived Roman Empire someday um, with the ten nation, ten kings, and this horn rising up, the Antichrist, um, that will come. And then Christ will rule in an earthly kingdom. So I would just encourage you to go and read those. I didn't spend too much time on those, but I just wanted to show you it so you're aware that that's in the book of Daniel and maybe to whet your appetite to go in and dig in a little deeper. Um, and this has got a lot of detail here. And this is from Daniel 9, but I just want to give you the highlights of it. I'm going to read Daniel 9, verses 24 to 26. Now, you ask, ask me, where do we get the idea that the tribulation is seven years long? Okay, listen close. All right, uh, Daniel 9, 24 to 27. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. Now, in, in Hebrew, the 70 weeks is literally 70 sets of sevens. 
Okay, and, it, and it's talking about years here in the context. So there's going to be 70 sets of seven years. So 70 times 7, 490, because you've got 7 times 7, 49, add the 0. 490 years. This prophecy is about 490-year period of time. And it says, These 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression. And these are on the right-hand side. The, um, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, so we know it's not totally fulfilled yet, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy, so we know it's not fulfilled yet. Some of these things, to finish this prophecy, have not been completed. Um, And then it says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, which most people say was the decree from Artaxerxes to rebuild in 445 B.C., from that time... Um, to rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. So from the time that the command goes out to rebuild until the Messiah comes, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So that's, six, that's 69 weeks. 69 of the 70 weeks. That's 483 years if you take it in sevens. So there's going to be 483 years exactly from this command going out in 445 um, to the coming of Christ. And and prophecy experts that are much more knowledgeable than me have done the chronology on this and they take a 360 day calendar year and they have calculated that from that decree in 445 BC until the coming of Christ on his triumphal entry week there was 483 years exactly isn't that amazing we have that right there but then we have a little bit more to this prophecy that hasn't been fulfilled yet we have the 70th week when does that occur well it says that two things must occur before the 70th week come here we are. And uh, in verse 26, and after the 62 weeks, that's after the 7 and 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. That's the crucifixion of Christ. I think that's pretty clear. That's talking about the death of the Messiah, but not for himself. And the people, and here's the second thing, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, um, and the end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. And that, that was fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, uh, 70 AD, when they destroyed the city of Jerusalem. So these prophecies came true. These were written hundreds of years before they were fulfilled and they came true. It's just wonderful. And so we can know with confidence that the 70th week will happen as well. And so uh, now we come to the 70th week in verse 27. And I might have it up here. Yes. Okay. Then he, um, this, is a, this is the prince mentioned in verse 26, but a different prince. Then he, then he, so this is after the destruction of Jerusalem, after that. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. So there's that last week of seven years. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Now, um, it talks about this prince coming, making a covenant with Israel for the seven years, in the middle of the seven years, breaking that covenant, um, and ending their sacrifices and committing something, um, in other translations would say, is called the abomination of desolation. Well, when is the abomination of desolation? Jesus tells us when. In Matthew 24, verses 15 and 16, Jesus says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place. Whoever reads, let him understand. So he's talking about Daniel's prophecy here in Daniel 9. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Matthew 24 is a chapter talking about the great tribulation. So when is Daniel's abomination of desolation, according to Jesus, going to be? The great tribulation. That's, why we, that's how we know that the tribulation period is seven years long. Because just as those first 483 years were fulfilled and Christ was cut off and the city of Jerusalem was destroyed and then, and then we're told that this, this prince will come and make a covenant with Israel for seven years. We haven't seen that yet. It's coming one day. That's the tribulation period according to Jesus. The abomination of desolation. Well, what is that abomination of desolation? Um, when you compare Daniel to Matthew to Revelation, um, and you look at the tribulation events, you see this world leader, the Antichrist we call him, making a peace treaty with Israel. 
and then in the middle, breaking that treaty. Um, and you look in Revelation 13, and you see a false prophet uh, promoting the worship of the beast. That's the Antichrist, the beast, it's called in Revelation. And uh, in, the, in the temple, so in the, in the temple of Jerusalem, um, the Jews aren't going to be allowed to worship the Lord anymore halfway through the tribulation uh, when the Antichrist breaks his peace treaty with the, with the Jews. And uh, he will set up a statue of himself to be worshipped. And that's the abomination of desolation. Um, so that's, that's the tribulation yet to come. Now, uh, the Antichrist can't come until the restrainer is removed, according to Second Thessalonians 2. It's talking about the, the restrainer will be removed one day, and then the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, will be revealed. Um, and so we know now, that, um, I think there's some debate about what the restrainer and who the restrainer could be, but I think um, I feel that it's the Holy Spirit, based on what I see there, because the Holy Spirit is the one that's restraining evil in the world and is the one who's indwelling the body of believers now. And when that body of believers is caught up to heaven in the rapture, the Holy Spirit will no longer be among the body of believers to restrain sin on the earth. We're called the salt and light of the earth. And, and, the, and we won't be here. Um, the Holy Spirit will still be active in the tribulation. There will be souls that will be saved. There will be miracles that occur uh, like in New Testament times, according to Joel. Okay, so in the tribulation, uh, I'm not going to cover that one. Okay, seven weeks, middle of the week, there's Daniel 9.27, breaking the covenant, and then you have Matthew 24, the great tribulation. Um, I'm not going to cover these in detail, but uh, read, this, read your Bible and read a jet tour through Revelation, and it'll help you understand all these tribulation events. But there's basically three sets of seven judgments, seven seal judgments. There's a scroll with seven seals on them, and, and that was important in that day. That means it couldn't be altered, it couldn't be changed. Um, and there was no one worthy in heaven to open it but the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And as he opens these seals one by one, um, it's, it's seals of judgment being poured out on the earth. There's the Antichrist, um, the, these first four, the four horsemen, if you've heard of that. Uh, anarchy on the earth, there, there's great wars, and naturally after wars there's a great famine. Uh, a quarter of the population of the earth will die in the fourth seal. That's pretty significant. I, I don't think believers should be going to the tribulation if he hasn't appointed us to wrath because a quarter of the earth is going to be slain there. Then there's a, a great number of martyrs. There's a great earthquake. Um, and then the sixth seal opens up. What the sixth one does is open up the next set of seven. So you have seven trumpet judgments where it talks about trees being burned, the sea turning to blood, uh, rivers turning to blood, the sun going dark, the abyss of imprisoned demons uh, for a sin they committed in Genesis 6, which I'll talk about in a month on Sunday morning. Thanks for scheduling me for that. Uh, is opened up, and these demons run rampant over the earth. And then an army um, of 200 million um, on the earth. And then the, sixth, the seventh trumpet opens up the seven bull judgments. So these are just very vivid imagery going on in heaven here of these judgments. And these are poured out quickly towards the end of the tribulation here, these bull judgments. Uh, bowls being poured out by angels, uh, one of great disease, uh, of sea and blood, um, rivers, uh, extremely scorching hot sun, um, darkness over the earth um, for a period of time. The Euphrates River dried up, and, and then you have a, a great battle at the end called the Battle of Armageddon. So that's a very high-level, quick overview of the tribulation, but I want to get on to some other good stuff tonight. And those are great chapters to read in chapters 6 through 18. Um, but the church will be spared the tribulation. We take comfort in that, don't we? Um, the two witnesses I mentioned earlier in chapter 11, um, maybe Moses and Elijah, but two people given power to plague the earth and then killed and, and raptured up to heaven uh, after three days. You have uh, another interesting thing mentioned. There will be the salvation of 144,000 Jews. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses talk about the 144,000 a lot, and they get that from Revelation here. Well, once their population of followers grew past 144,000 at one point in this past century, they had to kind of change that to mean, well, that just means a, a complete number of the wholeness of uh, all God's people. But there will literally be, literally be, if you read it literally, 144,000 Jews that will be saved and sealed by God to be special witnesses during the tribulation. Um, you have the beast mentioned several times, who's the Antichrist. And then in chapter 13, you have someone 
mentioned, um, and it says there's a second beast that rises up. He's a religious leader, and he's called the false prophet. He promotes the worship of the Antichrist um, and stirs up demonic powers. Chapter 13 is kind of interesting because you have the mention of the dragon and the beast, the Antichrist. Dragon is Satan, the beast, Antichrist, and the second beast, the false prophet. It's, it's kind of like an unholy trinity, right? I mean, you know, Father, Son, Holy Spirit on the demonic side. I mean, it's just a terrible time for the earth and the people on the earth. And then finally, after the seventh bold judgment, Jesus Christ comes in great power and glory. Um, and so I'd encourage you to read that jet tour through Revelation uh, if you have time for that. Okay, two beasts. Second coming of Jesus Christ. So we had the rapture up to the Bema. And then you have Christ on your chart here coming down. Now this here will be the T for the tribulation in this next part here. Uh, I'm going to put seven years. And I'm going to kind of draw a dotted line down the middle because there's that time Antichrist breaks this treaty in the middle. Uh, and then Christ comes down with the believers to the earth to destroy the armies of Antichrist and the false prophet. Um, we're told also as, we, as we're going to enter into the millennial kingdom that we have the um, marriage supper of the Lamb. I'm going to draw a couple wedding rings here. And just to remind us that, that, that there's going to be a great glorious day when we'll have intimate fellowship with the Lord on the earth. Uh, marriage supper of the Lamb, and, then, and we come down to earth with him um, in the millennium. So we're going to write here 1,000, because we take this as a literal 1,000 years that Jesus Christ will come down and rule as a literal earthly political ruler on the earth. I'll stop there for the moment. Um, so Jesus, in Revelation 19, we read that, Now I saw heaven opened, and, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. This is Jesus now. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He has a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And uh, it goes on to talk about an angel who calls out to the birds to come gra gather for the um, supper of the great God. Because Jesus is going to defeat his enemies. And, and I don't even know if there will actually be a battle. Because... It talks about that sword that comes out of his mouth, and the sword is a picture of the word of God. Maybe Jesus even just speaks a word of judgment, and it just defeats the enemies right there. I don't know. Maybe. That's, that's um, good speculation there. But um, then it talks about his defeat over the Antichrist and his armies, and it's called the Supper of the Great God. Uh, I just find that an interesting contrast to the marriage supper of the Lamb. You know, the believers are going to have a marriage supper of the Lamb and, and fellowship with the Lord. And the unbelievers will come to the supper of the great God, a judgment day. And the idea of birds gathering like carrion over, to defeated, over the defeated enemies. And, and it says that Jesus casts the Antichrist and his lieutenant, the false prophet, down into the lake of fire. So uh, into the lake of fire. We'll talk about that in just a little bit, too, at the very end for a moment. Okay, so now Jesus comes... And, and sets up his kingdom. But before he sets up his kingdom on the earth, he must do something first. He must take care of his enemy. He takes care of his enemy, Satan. It says in chapter 20, first three verses, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. So there's a time coming during this millennial age, this thousand-year period on the earth, when Satan's activities in our world will cease. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Um, after all the evil and, and chaos he's caused in our world and in our lives, we see that one day God's going to take care of our enemy. He's going to send an angel. And it doesn't say who. It doesn't say Michael or Gabriel or some powerful cherub. Just a nameless angel. 
uh, he sends to come down and take Satan, capture him. Uh, and this angel has the keys to the abyss. He has authority and control over the abyss. And he does six things. He lays hold of Satan. He binds him for a thousand years. He casts him into this bottomless pit, shuts him up, and seals him. That, to me, says that Satan's activity on the world is going to stop. Sorry, I'm millennialist. But you know what? Satan is going to be bound up. He won't be active on this world. Okay, and then he releases him at the end of the thousand years. Now, it says he's sent to the abyss. What is the abyss? I'm not going to talk about that too much, but it's the bottomless pit. And it's a place of imprisonment for disobedient angels and demons. And there's other places in Scripture that talk about that. Jude 6 talks about the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode. He has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. It's a holding place until judgment day. And Satan is sent there for a thousand years. Um, 2 Peter 2.4 also mentions angels who sinned and were cast down into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. So that, that's a place of imprisonment for demons or Satan who have overstepped their bounds in some way. Again, uh, my task in Genesis 6, but we'll talk about that in a month on Sunday morning. All right, so they're sent to, uh, now the Antichrist and the false prophet are sent to the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the final place of hell. It's a place of final torment for the last judgment. But Satan is um, put a, a great chain on him. And, and what, do you, what do you think of when you think of a great chain? What kind of great chain would this be that would hold Satan? It's probably not... Obviously, even though we take a literal approach to Scripture, it's probably not a literal iron and steel chain. Um, I think this is one of those times you say it's obvious that it's symbolic of something. It's a, I guess you, best you could say it's a, some sort of a spirit chain, right? I don't know what that's like, but th- that's what it says here. Some kind of chain is put on him that can uh, bind down a powerful demon like Satan. Now, that's, that's going to dramatically change the world, isn't it? Um, that's part of the reason the millennium is going to be so wonderful, He's, Satan's called the God of this age right now. He's, he's working in the children of disobedience, the scripture says. But if the kingdom's going to be all that God's designed, the enemy's got to go. And there can't be a thousand years of peace of righteousness, righteousness if he's around. So God removes him. And then we enter the millennium, this thousand-year period, in Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 to 6. And uh, this is really the time that the earth has been looking forward to. Romans 8 talks about the earth groaning, the creation groaning, looking forward to the day of redemption. And here it is in the millennium. Um, the, really, I would say it's kind of the first phase of the eternity with the new heavens and new earth. Um, now, this golden age of, on earth is going to happen. And, it, and it's important to think about. Uh, God will gather together his elect, says Matthew 24, to himself, and they're going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Um, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, he says, and the moon will not give its light. This is Jesus um, in Matthew 24. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the earth, heaven to the other. So it's going to happen, and, the, and he goes on to say that there's going to be uh, two men in the field, and one will be taken to judgment. The other will be left to enter the kingdom, the believers. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken for judgment, and the other will be left to enter the kingdom. So the sinner's taken away into judgment at this time, and the believer left to enter the millennial kingdom of Christ. Um, and then what will the millennium be like? Uh, that's, it's kind of cool to think about what the millennium will be like. I read these verses at the beginning here. Um, I might not take the time right now, but just think about what it will be like. I think it's just great to kind of dream ahead. I mean, if we're going to be on the earth for a thousand years in this millennium, let's talk about it for a moment. You know, if uh, I heard Randy Alcorn or read it in Randy Alcorn's book called Heaven, that if you, were t- uh, if you knew that in five years you were going on a mission to Mars, um, you would probably do everything you can leading up to then to learn all about it, to learn what it's going to be like, to prepare for it, uh, for heaven. And he says that we should be like that as believers, preparing for heaven. And, and the millennium is not the final heaven, but it's, it's the first phase of it. And then we should spend some time thinking about it. Well, first of all, the millennium is going to be populated by who? The living redeemed at the end of the tribulation. So it's the sheep and the goat judgment there. So we, uh, we, 
they will have children in the millennium. The believers who enter through the tribulation into the millennium will have children. And they will grow up and need to decide to follow Christ. Now, why do I say that? Well, there's some scriptures that say in Isaiah that describe this perfect time in the millennium, but that there will, there will still be death. Why would there be death in the millennium if, if sin's um, been totally removed? Well, we see at the end of the millennium in Revelation 20 that sin and death will be cast into the lake of fire. But not yet, at the end. Um, we'll get to that in a moment. Ruled by a dictator. You know what this world really needs? Is a dictator. Not just any dictator, but one perfect dictator who could rule the world in perfect righteousness. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Just to have the most perfect judge and ruler and king over the earth? That's going to happen. We're going to have the perfect dictator in Jesus Christ. And we're going to, um, and just think about what that means for Christ himself. You know, at his first coming, he suffered and died for sinners. And yet he's promised a kingdom through the line of David in 2 Samuel 7. And so we know that one day he's going to sit on that throne of King David uh, over the earth. And uh, he's going to have a great day that day. I just think that it'll be wonderful for Christ to finally experience the blessings of being the literal earthly political king over all the earth after what he went through at his first coming. Also ruled by the saints. Um, you know, we're going to rule with him. That's what scripture says. Um, and Luke 19 indicates those who faithfully serve God in this life will be given much authority in the kingdom. You know, we're told some may be given rule over ten cities or five cities. Or, and he's going to say to some, well done, good servant, because you're faithful and very little, have authority over ten cities, right? Uh, Revelation 5.10 says, and, and he's made us kings and priests to God, and we shall reign on the earth. So we're told very specifically in Revelation 5 that the saints will reign with Christ over the earth. Um, we're told that the 12 apostles will also be significant rulers. Uh, Matthew 19, he told his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, that's the millennium, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So the 12 apostles will have a significant role. Um, Old Testament saints, according to Daniel 7:18, shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and even forever and ever. And so they will be there. Um, the tribulation saints who were martyred because they opposed the Antichrist program, they're going to be raised from the dead just before the millennium begins and, and will be judges and rulers in the millennial government too. Uh, now, the center of government will be located in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, uh, according to several scriptures. Um, it's a time of peace and righteousness, but not total removal of sin and evil yet. Satan's going to be bound so there's not going to be his evil world system. The world's going to be ruled by Christ, so we're going to have a righteous world. And yet, the sin in our own hearts and lives is still there. And, that, and that's enough to cause some trouble. Um, now, these are some good verses here in Isaiah. i share a couple of them briefly here. Isaiah 65, 20. No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die, so there's death, 100 years old. But the sinner being 100 years old shall be accursed. So that's kind of neat there. You know, there's not going to be infant mortality. Um, but someone who dies at 100 will be considered a child. You know, just imagine somebody saying, uh, he died so young, he was only 100 years old. You know, that's what it's going to be like in the millennium. We're going to have pre-flood lifespans again in the millennium. I don't know how he's going to do it. He's going to do it. Um, that's going to be pretty cool. People are going to live very long mortal lives during that time. Um, in pre-flood-like conditions. Remember when Enoch was taken at 300 years old, uh, when he was raptured to God? That seemed kind of young when you look at all the other lifespans of the people back then, when they were living to six, seven, eight hundred, nine hundred years old. That's pretty amazing. All right, so there's, there's still death, though, so that means it's, it's a time of righteousness and peace on the earth, but there's still sin. Um, yeah, there's the hundredth birthday cake. You might be having an 800 in that time. Uh, 60, Isaiah 65, 20. Um, no more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. And I think that's the one I just read. Okay, next one. Isaiah eleven six nine, just describes this time of peace on the earth. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord um, as the waters cover the sea, it says. So the wolf shall lay down with the lamb, the leopard with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. A little child shall lead them. 
the cow and the bear shall graze. These are natural enemies in nature now. You think, well, how can these animals like that are just carnivorous and, and um, so against each other and fight and devour each other now get along? They will one day. Uh, the young ones shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw instead of, instead of other animals like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole. Uh, I don't know how many mothers find that believable, but that's what the Bible says, that this will be such a peaceful time that the nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole. Just a, just a picture, isn't it, of this time of peace and righteousness and harmony on the earth during the millennium. The weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. What a wonderful day when the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Here's a picture I found for us. The wolf and the lamb. Um, peace and righteousness, but not perfection in Isaiah 11. We're told in that day that the, there's still going to be people. The Gentiles shall still seek him. There'll still be people who need to seek Jesus and find him as their savior and during the millennium. Um, conditions will be prosperous. The earth will be a prosperous place. The curse on the earth was put on when? When Adam sinned, right? And when that curse is uh, lifted, or largely reversed at the beginning of the millennium and then completely lifted at the end of the millennium when death is conquered, the earth is going to be very productive again. Um, even wilderness places and desert places will become useful again. Here in Isaiah 35, we see the wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. Um, we see that for waters shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The parched ground shall become a pool and the thirsty land springs of water in the habitation of jackals, where each lay, there shall be grass with reeds and rushes. So just a great time for the earth. Um, here's a, a snapshot from the Left Behind movie with Kirk Cameron in it. And in it, there's a scene where this Kaim Rosenwig comes up with this formula during the tribulation to grow uh, crops plentifully in desert areas. I just thought that was kind of a neat picture that in the millennium, the earth will be prosperous and the, when the curse is largely reversed at that time. A uh, couple last events I'm just going to cover briefly. Um, we're getting close to the end of our time here. And we have mentioned here of the brief release of Satan in man's final rebellion. So at the end of the thousand years, says Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth this army of Satan, and they surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, and fire came down from, uh, from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Verse 3 says it's necessary for Satan to be released for a while, and I naturally ask, why? <laughs> the earth was doing pretty good during those thousand years. Why release him? Well, for reasons and the purposes and plans of God, it's necessary. Um, first, it, even, it shows that even after a thousand years of, of prison on the earth, Satan's nature has not changed. Satan is who he is. And it also demonstrates, secondly, the depravity, the sinfulness of the heart of man. Uh, even, even if people are outwardly acknowledging Christ in this millennial kingdom, uh, at the end there will be a, a millions of people who in their hearts... Uh, don't acknowledge him as their Lord and Savior. And that's a sobering and sad thing to think about. I, I can't imagine. It's really incredible, but it just shows the depths of sin in the human heart until sin is finally removed. God is letting sin run its course for a time, even under ideal conditions, and at the end we'll show that sin has to be removed. Um, we can't make it better on our own. Man can't improve himself to the point where sin is gone forever. He's showing one last time that we're ruined in sin and that we're responsible for the evil in this world. Not, not Satan, not the world system, but the sin in our own hearts. But it's run its course for the last time. And the power of God is so great, there's not even a real battle here. Just fire comes down from heaven and devours all the enemies of God. That's, that's going to be awesome. And uh, in the end, Satan, Satan has proved not to be God. He's not God, as he tried to be. He's not even a rival to God. He's going to be punished uh, forever and ever. And then we have uh, the last judgment and the end of the world by fire. And this is kind of where we wind to a close. 
um, we see a great white throne in heaven and him who sat on it, whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, and each one according to his works. And then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. You know, there really will be a judgment day one day. All unbelievers, the dead, it's not called the dead in Christ here. The dead in Christ, are in the, their names are in the book of life. Um, and we're sinners too, but the difference is that we've been, our sins have been paid for, have been covered by the blood of Christ. But there's other books that are opened. These are the books of works. I, I don't know if they're literal books or not. God has a, an amazing memory. Maybe it's just a picture of his great mind, um, but it could be literal books. But he opens them up, and, and there's going to be a judgment day. All people who have not accepted the free gift of salvation in Christ will have to account for their own sins before a holy God. And it's a sobering thought. One day there's going to be judgment for mankind. And they're going to be judged according to their works. So that kind of indicates that there'll probably be degrees of punishment, just like there's degrees of reward for believers at the Bema. There'll be degrees of punishment according to their works, it says, for the unbeliever. And, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's amazing. I mean, God has a record of every sinful thought and deed uh, we've ever committed. But for the believer... That has been paid for by the blood of Christ. That's, that's amazing. It just makes me appreciate all the more um, the gift of salvation through the Lord. And um, I'm going to add a few words here. All right, so we've got one here. All right, Hades. It's, it's, uh, New Testament speaks about people going to Hades who die who are not in Christ. That's, it's hell, um, but it's not the final hell. It's a place of punishment and, and flames, and the Bible describes it as a place of flames and punishment and torture. But uh, at the great uh, white throne judgment, uh, then they will be sent to a final hell, um, which it calls um, the lake of fire. So I'm just going to add that in here real quick. All right. If I had paint, that might look a little faster, but... Uh, so the lake of fire, in a, in a sobering thought, but it also reminds us that God is a holy and perfectly righteous and just God, and he must punish sin to right all the wrongs on this earth. He must punish sin. He's a holy God. And, and some would challenge the idea of an eternal lake of fire for, some, for the, just the finite sins we commit in this life. Why should they have to suffer eternally for it? That is probably, um, I mean, I personally struggle with that idea. I believe what the Bible says about it, but it's still emotionally hard to, you know, accept the reality of that. But think about who the offense was against, not just a finite being. It was against the infinite, eternal, holy God. And I think once we are there one day, we'll understand better um, about his holiness and righteousness and wrath and be able to praise him for it even. Uh, we don't take delight in it, of course, but the, there's, you have this picture at the beginning of Revelation 19 about believers um, praising God and saying, Alleluia! for the judgment on Babylon on the earth during the tribulation period. So and we will be able to glorify God even in his wrath one day. Um, and then very lastly here, we, we come to, there's the book of works. I mean, it won't look quite like that, but uh, here's an interesting chart you can find online. Just Google the two roads and the two destinies. This was up in the back of the Gospel Hall Church. I would visit um, my grandma's church in Waterloo. Uh, it was Western Avenue Gospel Hall, and they would have this, and it was a lot more detailed. It was big, and it was very more detailed than that even, but it looked like that, and that would be behind the preacher. So as a little kid sitting in a long service, uh, I would just kind of picture my way through these different things. It's Okay, so Google the two roads and the two destinies. There really are two roads and two destinies that the Bible talks about. 
And lastly, the new heavens and the new earth. Um, we see a new heaven, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Uh, just what a glorious ending for mankind. Um, then he, said, he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. The me- I, I don't have time, but there are measurements given for this city of New Jerusalem. That will, the heavenly city that will be the capital city of the earth and the new earth. And uh, if you take those measurements, it's 1,200 um, miles wide. And there's where it fits on the globe, if the city that will come down to earth as the heavenly city. Kind of cool to get that perspective. If it was on the U.S., it would fill up that much of the U.S. It's going to be a large city. It's going to be a glorious city, a beautiful city. Um, read all about it in the last couple chapters. Um, and the conditions in the new earth. So read about that in the last couple chapters of Revelation. I hope that just whets your appetite a little bit for studying it further for yourself. We can't possibly cover everything there is that could be covered in a class like this. But um, for myself, I know that just from refreshing these things in my mind and studying them more deeply has given me such a, a greater expectation, a greater sense of hope than ever before for what's to come in my life as a believer and for the believers I know and love and for the future of this earth. And it's a great thing. And the Lord is coming soon. And at the end of the book of Revelation, John says, even so, come Lord Jesus. Come soon, Lord Jesus. And that's our prayer tonight. Lord, this is great to think about and study. May it affect and change our lives now. But what I want most of all is for the Lord Jesus to come soon. You know, it's, it's going to be a great day. Let's pray and uh, close our time. And, and if you have more questions uh, you want to ask me about it afterwards, I would be happy to recommend books and resources or just discuss the theology of the end times with you. Um, if you're also wanting to do something on a deeper level of studying the Bible deeper on a regular basis, um, we want to promote mentorship here at Creekside, and uh, we're thinking about that more seriously this year as elders. And so if you would like um, someone to mentor you to go through Bible doctrines like this, um, I have this book here called 20 Basics Every Christian Should Know by Wayne Grudem, and he's excellent. I have his 1,000-page book on theology. I love that one. But here is an easy-to-use book. 20 Basics Every Christian Should Know, and he just goes through doctrinal topics like this, eschatology, and he goes through all the different doctrines. And uh, this would be a great book to mentor someone through if somebody's interested in that. Or if you want to mentor to just go through Bible doctrine or deeper teaching of the Word, um, we want to help you do that. And we hope to have a class like this again uh, later this year. Uh, in August, we are making preliminary plans to uh, have one called a Ready Defense and uh, this would be more on defending um, the Christian view, the Bible's view on how the earth was created in, in seven, six literal days and addressing the different views and accusations from uh, people who teach evolution. And uh, so this, I, I, I'm envisioning this next session, I, I haven't fleshed it out in much detail yet, but maybe uh, tag teaming with one of our experts here, Mike Johnson, in this area too, um, and, and doing a tag team on teaching through the the defense of the creation of God and, and Genesis accounts. So um, we'll probably talk about the flood and dinosaurs and the, you know, the creation of the world and that sort of thing. So if that interests you, well, we're kind of thinking about doing that in August. Um, okay, let's close in prayer. Father, I just thank you for this time to gather together uh, for a couple hours like this and just open up the glories of your word about the future of mankind and this earth and it seems um, like we have to move through it quickly and can not only scratch the surface, but Lord, it's just so beautiful and wonderful that you have such a great plan and purpose for not only our lives, but for this world. And we thank you that one day the evil one will be bound up for a thousand years and then cast into the lake of fire. Uh, we thank you that you will deal with sin and evil and unrighteousness once and for all and forever. And, and we will glorify you for that in your righteous judgment and wrath. Um, Lord, what a great thing it is that Jesus is coming one day and could come at any moment. 
um, Lord, may we live lives that reflect that belief and that truth. May it change the way we serve you and, and order our priorities in life and uh, evangelize the lost, knowing that there's a day of judgment one day. Um, Lord, pleading with people to turn to Christ for the salvation of their souls. Lord, may it stimulate our worship. Uh, may we sing, may we serve, may, may we live our lives in a way that's pleasing to you just because we know, Lord, that uh, the, the day is coming and that it's coming soon. And help us to stir one another up to love and good works. And Lord, if there's someone in our life we need to forgive, let us do it freely because we know that you're the one who's going to make all wrongs right one day. You're the one who holds the books of works and is going to and, and have the final judgment. We don't, we don't need to cast final judgment on people here, Lord. Help us to freely forgive others as Christ has forgiven us. Um, Lord, how precious the blood of Christ is to us. And uh, we, that is our only hope um, that we have this great future is because of what your son did for us uh, on the cross that day. And we give you praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'm going to just put an outline around New Jerusalem here. But uh, hopefully, if, you know what? Clarence Larkin charts. Google it. I'm serious. They're, they're a little bit old now, but uh, it's cool. He's got so many charts out there. Just go to the website. There's an official website for Clarence Larkin charts. And he's got all kinds of prophecy charts on there. You can look at for free. They're good.